Welcome on in to the Tony Parks Podcast. Thanks so much for being with us here today. Hopefully you have some stuff set up for the weekend and then also for the 4th of July weekend coming up around the corner as well, especially involving time with family. Uh, Today we're going to examine the first 10 years of being in the Pac-12 for the Utes. We'll break down the football program and the journey that has been that decade, uh, how it's changed along the way and what it means going forward. Thanks so much for being a part of listening to the podcast. As always, you can uh, follow me on all social media channels at Tony Parks 801. Uh, You can also email me TonyParks801 at gmail.com. And then, of course, uh, listening to us right here on the Utah Podcast Network. Uh, Lifting the curtain today, I'll get right to it. Uh, My topic is going to be about the Utes, as I said. So uh, it made me think of this story. I'm sure that many of you have known Uh, The surface of the story for John Madsen, right? Uh, He didn't play high school football, uh, went to snow, then played for the Utes, had a great college career, and uh, was in the NFL for the Raiders. And then briefly with the Browns, too. And then I think he had signed a quick deal with the the Detroit Lions and then uh, eventually uh, didn't uh, play for them. But he did not play a down of high school football. That dude, though, did know how to ball out at the game of football. Like, football was not foreign to this guy at all. Uh, and this guy was really good, really smart, really um, had great instincts on top of that and didn't get noticed for his physicality either. But he was a terrific athlete. Uh, so John and I were actually friends growing up, uh, mostly in junior high and high school. That's when we crossed paths. Uh, and he was a big Bears fan. And I was a big Bears fan. And at that time, uh, when the Bears were awful for so many years, Uh, There weren't really many Bears fans that stayed with the team, right? So that was one thing that actually bonded uh, he and I together. And then we went to Hunter Junior High together, Hunter High School. He played football in the Ute Conference League, which by no means replicates high school. I got that. Um, But he was absolutely one of the very best athletes on the field. Uh, Anytime he was on the field, he was one of the best. Um, Probably the best athlete on the field, if we get serious about it. But when he's playing like cornerback or receiver and things like that, it didn't get noticed as often. Um, He was also one of the best athletes on the field with baseball and then as well uh, with the game of basketball out there on the court. Um, He ended up, uh, I think, at like 6'4-ish, 6'5-ish. But the dude could really get up and uh, had terrific speed and, and was just a dang good player. Um, So great size, great frame, incredible athleticism and agility. Uh, I still think that him not playing high school football in some ways uh, played into his benefit um, because he would have played for Hunter High. Now, nothing wrong with Hunter High. I love Hunter High. Great tradition, great history. Um, In the years that he uh, was eligible to play high school football, uh, those teams were on the brink of the semifinals, like right down to the end, overtime. Uh, and then two years in a row made it to the semifinals. And then in his, uh, what would have been his senior year, um, Hunter was in the quarterfinals uh, and right on the brink of going to the finals. They lost by one point. Um, and so I played uh, football for a couple years there at Hunter. I was a wide receiver, really quick, good hands, uh, needed some work with route running, hated to get hit. I, I definitely didn't like getting hit, especially by everybody who was bigger than I was. So I was, I was nothing special, no doubt about that. I was going to be average at absolute best. Uh, my ceiling was average, and I probably was never going to get to that ceiling. Um, but in those days, if you played receiver at Hunter High, you were really just another offensive lineman. 
you just lined up farther away from the ball and sometimes ran some passing routes with never really having much of a chance to ever see the ball. That era had some amazing running backs at Hunter. Uh, David Fiafia, Joe Lomu, uh, Payamapa, uh, who was the most incredible raw athlete that I've ever seen. Uh, he could have like not practiced or prepared for anything and then just go out there and run for 1,000 yards without a problem. Uh, David Fungupo, who was really underrated. Uh, Nicky Fonua, uh, who could have held records if he wasn't playing behind some of the guys that he played behind. Um, and those teams had great offensive linemen. Tyler Tyson, uh, Tavita Maumau, Tim Fungupo, Wesamosa, uh, Henry Taufalele. I mean, these are guys that you may never have heard of, but at the time, uh, these guys weren't just great for Hunter. They were some of the very best linemen uh, in the state. So all John Madsen would have done, in my opinion, if he goes to Hunter and plays football, is smash heads into linebackers for three or four years. That's it. Uh, he would have been Ronald Tupea, who was a very good player, by the way, but Ronald Tupea at best, who uh, played at Utah State. Good dude. And uh, by the way, Ronald's daughter is one of, was one of the best volleyball players uh, in the state. Journey Tupea. Uh, dang good player. Uh, but those teams didn't throw the ball for a couple reasons. Like I said, great running backs, and they had a great O-line. And then two, uh, the age group that John played in growing up didn't really have a great quarterback in the passing game. In the play, in, in the, yeah, I mean, it, good athletes, you know, uh, and guys that, that had played quarterback with experience and stuff, but could not have great abilities in the downfield passing game. Uh, the yards might have looked good, but it was really a two-yard screen to a running back who ran the ball for 80 yards, and so it shows, you know, 82-yard touchdown pass. But it wasn't true. Uh, so no one could have known that in what would have been John's junior year that a really young Terrell Richards, who went on to play at Utah State himself, uh, would end up emerging as the QB. He was like 14 years old and was the starting QB for that team that contended for the title. But there's no way John could have known that. So anyway, I run into John at a Holiday Oil gas station randomly after high school. He, tell me, he tells me you know, he's playing football at Snow. And I'm like, wow, you, you went back to football? Like, that's awesome. Because um, I knew that this guy could really play. And if I remember right, I think he was down there actually on a visit for basketball when the football coach saw him. And I think that's how it actually got started. I'll have to check with John on that. Uh, I'll have John on the uh, podcast sometime in the future. So then the next year, his dad tells me that Ron McBride picks him up at Utah, uh, which was exciting because uh, it was cool to see him take those strides. I was a student at Utah at the time, so it was going to be great to catch up to him on campus, which we did. Um, and then the next year, I'm covering a Utah Utes practice. It is the first time ever that I'm interviewing Urban Meyer, right? So I wait for the media to pretty much be finished, and I'm going to ask him one of the final questions, and it was not pertinent to what was going on. It was not pertinent to the story of the day whatsoever. It was totally for my own interest because John uh, was a personal friend of mine. So I ask Urban what his initial thoughts are of John Madsen and his potential, right? And I'm expecting Urban to just talk about how he likes his size and he's working really hard and he's got a lot of competition and, you know, he's a bright young man, he's a valuable part of the team, blah, blah, blah. All the coach speak that you're expecting to hear, that's what I think I'm going to hear. Urban Meyer's eyes light up when I bring up John Madsen because you could tell that nobody's really talked to him much about John um, and most of the conversation has been about other people. And he tells me point blank after I ask him about John, he goes, yeah, yeah nobody's talking about him right now, but when I'm done with John Madsen, he's going to be a starter someday in the NFL. You can mark that down. Yeah, yeah, he'll start in the NFL. When I'm done with him, 
that's what it'll be. And I'm thinking, all right, okay. I was completely shocked. Like, you're, okay, you're not serious. I mean, <laughs> give me a break. And uh, that year, John didn't even see the field, if I remember right. I mean, I know they were 10-2. and two, They won the conference, right? And uh, the only time I, I remember seeing John was like in a foggy video in the BYU visiting locker room singing the fight song after they beat BYU 3-0, and they were celebrating like their first outright conference title in, in 40 years or something like that. So after that practice in 03, I remember laughing in my car on the way back to the station. I'm telling guys at the station that were there that either this Urban Meyer dude is the greatest coach in the history of college football, and we don't know it, or he's completely full of himself. Because as much as I love John, and he was a friend of mine, and he was my favorite college football player because of it, you know, in our friendship, I didn't see it. I didn't see that at all. And props to Urban Meyer, because he wasn't full of himself, and he is arguably the greatest coach in the history of college football, uh, because he envisioned stuff like that about players, and he knew how to get something like that out of them, and, and John speaks a lot about, you know, Urban's impact on his life and, and on his career. So before you know it, you know, he's not just a good player. He's part of a 12-0 team, which I still think that 0-4 Utah team outperformed every team in the history of the state. Now, notice that I said outperformed. They didn't out-accomplish every team. They didn't out-achieve every team because other teams were able to receive bigger trophies and accomplishments. College football's weird with the way they do things, and, and that's how it works. So, for instance... I would say Utah's 2019 football team this past year outperformed Virginia's, right? But the Cavaliers were a New Year's Six team. They went to the Orange Bowl, which is considered a bigger accomplishment than ending your season as a team in the, um, uh, what, what was it, the Alamo Bowl for Utah. So I think the 04 Utes outperformed the 84 BYU team even though winning the Natty is a better achievement, right? Their quality of play uh, was not as good as Utah's in 04, that being BYU's 84 team, in my opinion. Uh, Utah's 08 team beat better opponents, but their quality of play was inconsistent at best, and they, they did catch some incredible breaks along the way. Uh, the 2019 Utah team may have been the more talented team overall, uh, and I think the draft will tell you a lot about that, um, but the 04 Utes... Didn't play too many great teams by any means, but they embarrassed a Cotton Bowl Texas A&M team and everyone else, except Air Force in the first two minutes. After that, it was over for everyone else. Anyone else, it was over before it even started, except, yeah, that little blip where they go down 14 nothing to Air Force. So it was great to see, you know, what that team did and what John Madsen did individually. It was fun to follow um, from a personal friendship standpoint and all of that and being able to watch his story from the time uh, that I was 12 years old and that he was 12 years old. Uh, didn't play high school football, but he was a dang good football player. I secretly knew that, but I never knew he'd be as good as what Urban Meyer was talking about. That was, yeah. If there was any time that you ever told me he was going to be an NFL player like Urban Meyer did, I wouldn't believe it. And I didn't believe Urban. I really didn't. Uh, John now has a great business called uh, Athletic AF. Uh, I sh uh, strongly suggest people looking into it if you want to make great changes to your life physically and psychologically. It's actually amazing work uh, that he's doing. Uh, you should follow him on social media channels. He has some great messages for people out there. Uh, he's incredibly direct, like really honest about helping people shift their mindset. And I can tell you personally that uh, he's impacted me greatly with his messages and his mindset. Uh, I think he can be of help to anyone out there. Uh, so make sure to check him out. So, all right, let's get to it. 
Let's talk about the Utes uh, and this past 10 years, this decade that was the 10s. Uh, Utah football has existed in the Pac-12 during that time. Uh, it has very much exceeded what I uh, realistically expected overall for the program. Um, I thought that this program would have to take longer to get fully acclimated into competing for a division title. And to be completely honest, it didn't take that long. Now, I know the, the first year that they were there, they were on the brink of winning the division. But I think we all know that's a very hollow situation compared to realistically competing for the division title during most years. Like, there's a big difference between the quality of that 2011 team and the quality of that 18 and 19 team. I mean, it's like night and day. So that 11 Utah team was fortunate with the break of USC being ineligible and the division being insanely bad. That was a really bad division. Um, So I'll give that staff a lot of credit, though, because just evaluating the season, I mean, they start 0-4. You know, they start 0-4, they lost their starting quarterback on top of that, it wasn't looking good, and uh, they were able to really get through and play pretty well with a really flawed roster. Uh, John Hayes was a good dude, but honestly had no business being on a Division I football field. Uh, so props to him and that staff for scratching out a 7-5 and five year. Tim Davis, I thought, did a great job. Norm Chow, he was amazing at, at being able to keep that team focused on getting better. Um, and that was a really mentally tough team. So uh, it, 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 I thought that team really uh, was a great example of what Kyle Whittingham is and not laying down and dying after they started 0-4 because it was a bad 0-4. Like that loss they had at uh, AT&T Park in San Francisco. It was called AT&T Park at the time. Uh, they lost like, I think it was 34-10, to 10, but they were just out of it before it ever started. It was awful, just awful. So... Uh, the 12 and 13 seasons are really what I expected to see for most of that first half of the decade, right? And maybe even most of the decade altogether. And the reason is that moving towards making sure you have the type of player that you need for that level of play is a real challenge, especially when you had a roster loaded with Mountain West players. Now, I'm not thinking they'd be 5 and 7 every year, but they, they would be between... Five and seven wins most of the time with an occasional eight-win season mixed in there. That's kind of what I was thinking. And that's because you had other programs in the pack 10 and now 12 uh, that were going to be really tough to deal with. Uh, Now, some of these were really good Mountain West players that Utah was dealing with, but they weren't what you needed across the board to win at a rate that you were, you know, when you weren't accustomed to being a P5 team. Uh, when you were around the top of the Mountain West with regularity, it was a different kind of player. Like, it was a good player, but you move that guy into P5, and it's a totally different situation. Uh, I think the methodical growth of Utah football with that staff, when you look at the way that they recruited, when you look at the JC kids they picked up, uh, when you look at the way that they formed an identity and became a place that a lot of players really wanted to play, Um, before they ever hit a high number of wins, it's something that that fan base should be really proud of. Really proud of. Because the work that goes in after a 5-7 and season and then another 5-7 and season, like to be able to put the work behind the scenes to believe that that process is going to help you become the kind of winner that you believe you can be at that level, uh, you have to have terrific faith in what you're doing and terrific belief and knowledge in what you're doing. Um, So if you remember right, yeah, we talk about it, the 5-7 and seasons, that 13 year, they were 2-7 and seven in conference play, and they were clinging to beat a bad Colorado team on the final day of the year. I mean, just clinging to beat them. Uh, some of this should have happened because they didn't have a better team. Uh, they still didn't have a Pac-12 roster, like I said. 
That offseason, they're able to get a game-changing running back, a game-changing linebacker, and a field-flipping returner in the same offseason. They didn't have a fabulous quarterback by any means. And they were able to pull off a nine-win season in 2014 and compete for the division title. That was terrific work. People will remember the disappointment of that November, right? Kalen Clay's fumble at the goal line, clearly. Clearly, that was tough. Uh, But viewing that season as a whole, it was remarkable that the staff was able to put together something so quickly to change what they were looking at in terms of expectation and in terms of explosive playmaking ability. It's one thing to get guys in or develop guys. It's another thing that in one offseason you could be like, game changer, game changer, game changer. That's, That's hard to do. So winning that game at Michigan in 2014 actually wasn't the breakthrough. Uh, because that Michigan team was 5-7, and seven, completely full of themselves at the time. I, I know from being a fan of that team. Uh, I mean, they were getting blanked by Notre Dame, if I remember right, and then handled at home against Minnesota, a bad Minnesota team, and they lost like 31-14. to 14. Um, But what was evident in that victory was that they could put together a quality run game. They had a game-changing player in the return game, and that game was the breakout for Gianni Paul. His ability to be an incredibly disruptive force, was really obvious that night. I know they got a ton of takeaways, and he was a huge part of it. He might have he been involved in, I know he was involved in at least two takeaways. He might have been involved in as many as four, but I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head. So I remember being there that night in Ann Arbor, and I'm in the press box during a massive weather delay, and I'm thinking about the ways that things had changed for this Utah team, and knowing they were probably headed for a much better season than what most of us had originally thought. Because before that season, a lot of the talk was seven might be the ceiling. The weirdest part about that year was the next stretch of games. Because now they're playing Washington State on a rainy night at home. They get off to this awesome start. I forget, it might have been up like 20 to nothing or something like that. And they give up a fourth and 13 for a TD, fourth and 18 for a TD. They just couldn't put Wazoo away. Phillips misses a field goal he usually makes, and Drez Anderson drops a deep ball that would have been a TD for sure. Then they win the game at UCLA when Kendall Thompson makes a bunch of clutch runs and kind of makes his debut, and people were excited about the future of him for about 15 seconds. Uh, Drez Anderson then makes the tough catch look easy, one of the best catches I've ever seen, and the Utah defense gets like 10 sacks before almost also completely giving that game up. I mean, they almost gave that game up at the end. So the next game at Oregon State is remembered for Booker's 229 on the ground. And I think he probably had about 200 carries. They gave him the ball a ton. And the reason being is because after everyone thought they found their guy in Thompson, he couldn't make it past halftime before being pulled out once again for Wilson. So crazy situation going on here. They win the game in double OT. Awesome performance by Booker. I mean, single-handedly carried that team. Uh, They were a really flawed team, but they kept winning. And then had their most 2014 win of the season against USC uh, when Orfe picks up that weird lateral that everyone just stared at. So he ran up, picked it up, and scored a TD. Aguilar, on what would have been a game-ending play to give them a first down to put it away, steps out of bounds on fourth and two. And people forget that they threw the ball at the feet of a wide-open tight end on third and two as well. So they get lucky with that. Suddenly, Travis Wilson in the offense, that didn't have a great night really up to that point. They drive the field, and they end it with a dramatic touchdown to Clay. So, all of a sudden, they're 6-1. and one. No one really knew what to make of this team because they have a weird QB situation. 
One receiver is fast, but a bad route runner. Another's fast, but drops the ball too often. And then another guy that can't get open, but has amazing hands. So it was just this really weird combination of things to watch. And then they, they would make losing plays, but get away with winning the game. Um, and I remember leaving the game that night. Uh, it was one of the rare games that I had a chance to be at. And I was with my wife, and she's a, a huge Utah fan. We usually try to go to one game a year if the schedules happen to line up and kickoff times and all of that. And we were arguing all the way to the car because I kept telling her, you can't keep winning like this. Like, you are not going to keep getting by. There's no way. Like, no way. So we all know what happened. They lost three of their next four. Phillips misses an OT against Arizona State. Clay drops the ball against Oregon at the one-yard line, and, and they got handled in that game anyway. But, but still, it would have been 14-zip. And then the weird no-show on senior day against Arizona. So that team was 9-4. and four. They get remembered for what was a bad November. But that year, the real goal was just to get back to a bowl game, and they far exceeded that. Um, so the staff really deserved a lot of credit for that season. I thought they got more out of that group than most people realized. They were an overachieving 9-4 and four type of team. Now, the 15th season, they were 5th in the division, 9-3 and three in the reg, and 6-3 and three in conference, which is, is really where the focus should go, right? What they, they did in the conference, not, not where they finished in the division. Because that year, they also beat a 10-win Michigan team in the non-conference, which was great, that first game of the year. Um, and that was a really good Michigan team. It was their first game uh, with a new situation, but it was clear they were much better than the year before. So Utah goes 7-3 and three against uh, P5 opponents that year uh, in the regular season. That's the season where you understand that the Pac-12 had true parity, right? Like some seasons people had to argue parity, and it's really just watered down. Last year, people argued parity for a minute. I don't want to hear it. Like, that's not parity. Even in 2018, people tried to argue parity. It was watered down. In some of the recent years, I, I, you just, yeah, you can't argue parity. But in that 2015 year, absolutely parity existed in the Pac-12. So there were a lot of really good teams. That team, that Utah team was good. But you knew they were dealing with a QB that had some shortfalls. I mean, Travis Wilson started the year pretty well. Um, but USC, you know, here they are. They were ranked pretty high. Uh, right around top five, and then they play USC, and USC jumped all over him in that loss. He had four picks, uh, and I think Cam Smith ended up with a few of them in that game. Wilson threw in that year. That was a real turning point because Wilson threw for over 200 yards four times in the first half of that year and then only did it once afterward. He had four games in the back half of the season where I think he was 50% or below on completions. He threw four TD passes alone in that breakout win against Oregon, the big 62-20 to 20 type game. But then he only threw four total TD passes in the entire second half of the year after that USC loss. So it was clear things had really changed for him. It was the second year in a row that people felt the Utes you know, had this fall apart uh, in November and couldn't handle the pressure in November. But if we were just completely honest, I always thought they were just out of tricks. That 14 and that 15 team, they were out of tricks. They were out of another weird way to try to be able to get by with a quarterback that wasn't really all that dynamic, and teams had figured him out. And it, it used to be a really big topic of conversation when hosting shows, right? It was a real chicken and egg conversation. Was Wilson not better because he wasn't being coached very well? 
Was it because he wasn't going to get any better? Was it because the coaching staff on the offense was was being handcuffed by Kyle? You know, was Kyle emphasizing ball security so much that that it was hurting their chances of ever being good on that side of the ball? Like, the conversations went on forever, but I always felt it was a collective issue. You know, collective issue combined with the fact that they were they were dealing with a QB that was capable of great moments but also had limitations. Travis Wilson should be remembered more positively than negatively in his career at Utah. I mean, the guy still won a lot of games. I don't doubt that at all. But while he helped them get to a good spot, you know, they were going to need an upgrade if they were going to get serious about taking that next step. Like, they had to have it. And this was also in the middle of the constant revolving door that was going on with the offense coordinator position. So Utah had a few things to figure out. They, they got to the point of good, but if they wanted to get to great, you know, there were a few other ingredients that were going to be critical to that recipe. And then in 16, people remember the way it went down in November, and it was still a really good year, but this was the one that was different. This was the first time that I thought, and maybe the only time I thought, they really got in their own way on a couple of occasions because they had some losses that never should have happened. This is where I thought they had the better team than what their record actually showed. They're 8-4, not a bad season, contended late in the year, and they just had a ton of self-inflicted wounds that crushed them. They had a couple uh, bad bounces with some injuries too, but, but up to this point, I thought it was fair to say the Utes were overperforming to get to eight and four or nine and three, um, and to some of that division contention level. Um, but I don't think the fourteen team was quite as capable as the sixteen team. Both teams eight and four, but the fourteen team was winning games in weird ways and getting by. The sixteen team was starting to really put something together with a good three-headed monster in the backfield. I thought Troy Williams had some really nice upside with a, a few limitations. Uh, but proved that he could be much more capable than I had originally thought. Uh, they had the disappointing shortcoming at Cal. They had seven tries to try and get that thing in the end zone to win it. Uh, the officials botched a timeout situation, uh, so I think they should have had an eighth, but no one's going to feel sorry for them, <laughs> you know, once you don't get it in with seven chances. And the 16 team was tied late with a great Washington team uh, after it looked like they might get handled early, and then Chase Hansen changes everything with a big pick. Uh, And in the end, it was a great game, but Jake Browning has a good pooch punt uh, that pinned the Utes back. Uh, Horrendous block in the back, no call on a punt return, and then Utah had a shot in the end to tie it uh, with a late drive. But at the end, uh, Utah ends up losing, I think it was 31-24. So it wasn't just one example of that team being capable of of something great. Uh, The Utes were ranked for most of that year. I remember them moving up in my ballot even after the loss to Washington. Uh, people were critical of that, if I remember right. I, I want to say they moved up, but it was they competed so well with a team that made the playoffs and with the rest of what happened in college football that day. Uh, when you shuffle the deck, um, Utah actually got you know some credit for playing really, really well. Um, it, it was crazy. I think I think Utah was as high as number eleven at some point in that year. But the the hard part of the sixteen year for Utah was the loss to Oregon. And that's the one they should not have lost. They got in their own way. They fell on their face. They absolutely had a chance to really go out there and win the division. Uh, if they win the next two games, yeah, if they win that game and the next one, I, I believe that would have given them the division title because they would have played Colorado, who was a one-loss division team, and Utah would have been a two-loss division team. I'd have to go back and look. Uh, I'm trying to, uh, because, yeah, I think USC was a two-loss team and Utah beat them. Anyway, not the point. 
Um, so Oregon was like a three-win team, though. I mean, that was an awful Oregon team. This was kind of the understanding that things had changed there at Oregon. So Utah's right there in the thick of things for that division. And in that game, they should have been in much more control early on. They're right there in the thick of things. Offense hurts them in the first half. Troy Williams with a big fumble deep in Oregon territory uh, that squashed a promising drive, would have put them in complete control. Uh, People forget Justin Thomas dropped a pick six in the second half. Uh, Troy Williams misses Butler Bird on a big wheel route. And so while Utah had a chance to really put them down, they let them hang around. And then with an 11-point lead, it's amazing what starts a comeback, right? 11-point lead late in the third. They give up this big punt return that starts the comeback. And then suddenly their defense just forgets how to tackle, like they were totally allergic to tackling. They give up touchdowns on four drives, the last four drives of Oregon. And even after Oregon gifted Utah a touchdown on a weird muff punt, uh, it was crazy, like how Utah was still able to get breaks to go their way. But they, they tackled poorly. They played poor defense. They made some key mistakes early that, that kept them from putting it away. And then Darren Carrington's catch for Oregon to win the game was phenomenal. But they never should have been in that position in the first place. To me, that's the loss in that decade that probably hurt as much as any loss if you're a Ute fan out there. Because out of all the years, when you factor the talent that the Utes had and what they were realistically capable of, the 16 season is the one that I think Ute fans should have been most upset by. That's the one where you can point and say that your team had a good season, but also underperformed. They left some meat on the bone. And most of their shortfalls were their own fault. I mean, even if they would have lost to like a really good Colorado team that year and not won the division, they could have and probably should have been a 10-win kind of team. So I I thought they were going to have to feel the same way about the 18 year. Right, I thought the 18 year was going to be the same kind of thing. The 16 team was very good, had an issue with constantly making losing plays in big games. Well, the 18 team seemed to be that exact same kind of team, but they decided to do it early in the year with the loss at home to Washington, <laughs> where they, they couldn't help but to keep getting in their own way. Uh, Peter Tonga fumbles a pick six out of bounds. Huntley throws the ball all over the place, missing targets. Uh, one of their tight ends drops a TD on a fourth and one. <laughs> Oh, I couldn't believe it. Uh, And then the ill-timed and questionable as well, uh, penalties and mistakes by Utah in that uh, Washington State game. And that killed them. So that team starts 0-2, and we talked about, hey, they could win the division this year. And you started to feel like, wow, not only are they under 0-2, but they're underperforming. Um, So just instead of giving it away in November, they're now doing it in September. And so they responded well. They played some of their best Pac-12 football for sure after that. Uh, turned out 6-1 and one after starting 0-2, and, and then won the division 6-3 and three as a team that wasn't even healthy, right? So that, that actually they should have been really proud of, and, and I know that they didn't do well in the uh, conference title game in the bowl game, right, which was then a theme in 2019. So 19 was obviously a special year. Special year, hollow finish. The landing spot and the final chapters were ugly, which was a real shocker. I mean, I could definitely see them losing to Oregon, but I never saw a 37 to 15. No way. And as bad as it was for the fans of the Utes, I still say, and my wife got mad at me when I said this to her after they lost to Oregon, as hard a pill as it is to swallow, the going up is always worth the coming down. When you've had a great year and it doesn't turn out to be the perfect year, the going up is still, it's, it's still worth the coming down. My favorite sports teams are like 1-12 in championship rounds. 
I mean, like I've had Michigan football seasons that have been amazing with a chance to go to the playoffs as well and then have it come to a crashing end. Uh, Michigan basketball has been to the championship game four times in my fandom and lost all four. Uh, before the Cubs won the title, they had a disappointment of the 03 LCS and then the 15 LCS, right? Like the, the Jazz and their runs to the finals. You know exactly what I'm talking about there. Uh, my Bears losing in the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 41, after they get two great special teams plays, three takeaways, and Thomas Jones runs for over 100 yards. A great recipe for a win, and they lose. And then four years later, uh, they lose to the Packers in the NFC title game. So it happens. And each time I look back, and think to myself, you know, even though they didn't win the title, and it hurt, clearly it sucked as a fan. You, you hate to feel that. Uh, the journey was still fun. Doesn't make me feel better about the loss, but it does make me feel better about the season. So Ute fans should still feel good, in my opinion, about that 19th season, although the final games certainly make you roll your eyes because when the lights were the brightest, they, they were not just bad. They were awful. They were awful. Uh, now as they turn the page to the 20 season, I think it's very different. Going forward, I think things are very, very different. Because when they flushed out some of the talent after the 16-year, right, they dropped to 6-6 six and six in that 17-year. And it was understood. It was accepted that that would happen. It was expected, like everybody predicted that. Now it's different. I believe that after their back-to-back -back division championships, I don't expect them to drop to around 500. I don't believe that Utah football has emptied their cup. Like, I believe they have advanced past the stage of being a team that falls towards a barely decent season with many players moving on. Like, I think this can be the case for Arizona and Washington State. They've had great years in the past and then turned downward quickly. Um, I think they're now at the point that while it's not going to be a banner season and a 10-win kind of year in 2020, it should be something like an 8-4 and four type of year. They are better than every team that's in their non-conference. And I think they have a better program than at least six of the conference teams that are on the schedule. I would say that three of those games in their conference schedule are still in the category of gimmies. And there is no reason they shouldn't go two and four in the other six games. If all that happens, you're eight and four. Eight and four in a year when you're starting over with a new quarterback, fresh faces in a number of positions, um, but they're not starting over in a new culture. So I believe that many players that have been waiting their time and sitting out because you had really good players in front of them are ready to go out and perform. Just because those players who were in front of them were awesome, that does not somehow mean that the players behind them and the players stepping in now have to be as big a drop-off. I mean, just because your, your first-string guy is, is an NFL guy, that doesn't mean your second-string guy must suck. So you're going to see some drop-off. But I don't think that drop-off is going to be this incredible free-fall, you know, like, like you did, like I said, like you did in the 17th the season. You had back-to-back -back years where you won nine and then ten games, uh, and then you won nine games again, and then in the blink of an eye, you're, you're back to six wins in the regular season. You know, that might have been the case for Utah in the 16-17 to 17 exchange, but I don't think that's the case for Utah moving from 19 to 20. I don't think that that should be the expectation. You know, I think the expectation should be, like I said, an eight and four type team. I believe the methodical growth has put them in the spot to be ready for a good season, even if it's not a banner kind of year. You know, they had a banner year in 2019. Hollow ending, banner year. 
the first time that I saw Utah as something different in the ways of striding towards greatness in the Pac-12 was that four-game stretch that they had in 2018. They dominated four teams, including USC. I mean, completely embarrassed them. They didn't even play perfectly in some of those games. But you saw that they had the pretty scary level that was going to be brutal for other teams in their division. And other teams on that schedule were going to have to deal with this. You also saw quarterback play hit a more dynamic level. Huntley starting to show you uh, what that, that ultimate upside was. He made some fantastic plays. And the bigger thing was you could see that this was kind of the perfect situation that Kyle Whittingham preferred and envisioned. People forget that, that four-game stretch, Huntley's growth was out of this world. There's no doubt. But that team also ran the ball about 68% of the time during that stretch of dominance. Their pass rush was incredible. I mean, they were winning one-on-one matchups to go with it, and, and they were demoralizing teams in a way uh, that I hadn't really seen in their Pac-12 years. So Utah playing at a top-10 level for sure in that four-game stretch, and it was threatening right around a top-5 level. I mean, that window was dominance. It was great. And that was the first time I ever saw Utah football play like that. So Huntley gets hurt. Utah still wins the division. They didn't end well in the title game, as you know, in the bowl game as well. Uh, the, the second half, they just they, they fell apart. But they showed a window of time during the year to be what they believed they could be. Now, a great indication of how things have changed in terms of the expectation for Utah going forward, right, after losing all this talent, like what gives us the indication that the expectation should be different? Go look at their first game of the year. I pulled this up, ESPN.com. They play BYU, right? Rivalry game. Uh, Utah's at home. BYU could could have a pretty good team this year uh, with some key playmakers coming back. And if Zach Wilson can take a bigger step, like they got a chance to have you know a good year. Uh, they still have some dang good players. So people certainly feel like this is BYU's chance to maybe get the Utes first game of the year, overhauling the roster for Utah. BYU with an experienced QB, and they hope that this can end the streak. They don't want it to become ten in a row. Quite frankly, they should be zeroing in on this chance. They should feel like they have a shot here. And Utah has some experienced running backs, but will now have to find uh, the new featured back. They'll have a new QB, several new players on the defensive end. BYU's bringing about their QB and a ton of playmaking. And if Zach is able to take that step, like I said, it could be a great year. There's potential there. And ESPN's matchup predictor, which is not a perfect science by any means, nor should it be considered, you know, the end-all, be-all. But it, it'll tell you something. Their matchup predictor gives Utah an 86% chance of winning that game. 86. That's not saying anything negative about the Cougars. It's speaking higher of the Utes, and I think it's more of an indication about where they are as a program. Rebuilding is no longer the vision and expectation for Utah. It's about reloading. That's a place that they were able to get in the final years of the Mountain West, right? Like in that 8, 9, 10-year. Uh, remember, they go to the Sugar Bowl, then they lose a bunch of talent, they lose a great quarterback, and they still have a 9-win year the next season, even switching quarterbacks in the middle of the year. All three losses in that 9-3 and three year uh, were against teams that were better than them, right? So they were never going to duplicate what they just did the year before in that 9 situation. But they absolutely had a good year. Then in 2010, they're 10-2, right? Maybe a shot to get back to a BCS, but uh, they were a serious threat again in November. They were ranked top five, and I feel like now in the Pac-12, with a scale that is different, 
they've reached that caliber of a program. Not 10 wins every two years. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying as a P5 in this particular conference, and it's weighed a little differently because the competition is tougher overall, even if you want to argue that the Pac-12 is fifth out of the P5, winning the division or going 11-1, and one, it, I mean, that's not always realistic. But getting to 8-4 and four at this level of competition with regularity is totally reasonable. And it's something I expect to happen. Dropping to 6-6 six and six and just saying, well, they lost a lot of talent is not where this program is, in my opinion. That is not where this program is. I think Utah is primed to be the kind of team that can be like what Stanford was in the North for most of this decade. A team that wasn't one of the household names, right, but pretty consistently up there, threatening to do something great, not really a playoff team with rare exception, but a New Year's Six threat with regularity, Utah can be what Stanford was. Of course, we're not talking about the academic prestige. Let's, let's pump the brakes there. We're talking about operating a program. That doesn't, you know, a program that doesn't have uh, uh, the USC or Oregon advantages, you know, or the finances. Uh, they can be that next team in the group to have an outstanding season. In the past decade, Stanford had six seasons of 10 or more wins. They put together eight seasons of nine or more wins. All of this, including postseason. So I'm, I'm adding their bowl games and all that, right? Stanford had five bowl games that are currently in the New Year's Six. So they had half of that decade in those types of bowl games. Now, the bowl game tie-ins, by the way, are a little different uh, currently compared to the first half of that decade. So it's going to be different now in terms of destination. So once again, like I said earlier when talking about that 04 Utah team, uh, the performance level is always different than the achievement level. College football is very bizarre on what they do to crown teams of achievement and what the performance level actually was. So, for instance, Utah was in the Alamo Bowl this year. Virginia was in the Orange Bowl. I would clearly say that I think Utah had the better team. Um, they also had the better record through 12 games. And while they were soundly beaten in the Pac-12 title game, uh, Virginia was beaten 62-17. to So maybe Utah doesn't go to five uh, New Year's Six Bowl games, if you will, but I think they're capable uh, to keep their staff in a good place, their culture in a good place, the way they operate in a good place. They could absolutely be that next team up for the next decade. Once again, being that next team outside of what those household names happen to be, teams with bigger money, teams with bigger resources. Uh, it's not a guarantee, of course, and, and a lot of the things that have to happen in order to do what Stanford did in the 10s uh, takes a lot of sustainability. But they have a lot of the same characteristics involving the culture, right? So you look at the characteristics of the Stanford program, strong head coach, consistent in his message, great staff around him, dedicated to the place specifically that he's coaching at, knowing what kinds of kids work there within their program, tremendous with player development, getting the most out of what it is they have, incredibly adaptable, know how to work uh, around and through crisis. I mean, that's kind of the stuff that Utah's program has been about for a while. So when they started as a member of the Pac-12, they were missing some of the talent they needed, right? A guy like Brian Blecken, all Mountain West. Uh, but when playing in the Pac-12, switching positions, gaining weight, losing weight, switching positions again, trying to find something that could work. No slight to Brian. People used to always criticize me because they thought I, I was attacking, you know, Brian Blecken. This is just an indicator of how different it is from G5 reality to P5 reality. And that transition was not an easy one. And I thought Kyle Whittingham made it look a lot easier than people realize. I mean, I think the work uh, that the impact, like someone of Andy Ludwig's caliber, 
can make a world of a difference uh, when working with QBs. You know, if we go back and look at Travis Wilson, I love the guy. But I don't think he ever really got all that better from year one all the way through year four. It just didn't happen. If you look at Wilson's non-Power 5 numbers, they were through the roof. Then if you look at his P5 only numbers, then he really struggled. So you saw coordinators being really careful with him. Really, really careful with him. Uh, Most times, that's what they had to do. And that was a key reason that Utah was able to get by and win a number of games. Um, But it wasn't exactly what they needed to thrive and truly uh, excel. So switching back to the Mountain West days, you look at Brian Johnson's numbers before and after Andy Ludwig. I mean, you saw an incredible jump from his junior to senior year. And Coach Ludwig was a huge reason for that, in my opinion. And then when looking at the jump Tyler Huntley made from junior to senior year, you could see the dynamic abilities that he already had, right? You saw it, and you saw that in his junior year. And now they were maximized. High efficiency numbers, low amount of mistakes, dynamic playmaking. It was, it was something great to see because I, I constantly heard about how big of a stud this guy was going to be. I was, I was curious to see what that actually looked like. And he showed some of those flashes in his junior year, like I said. And then in the, the loss to Washington State, uh, he showed it then too uh, in that junior year, even in a loss. And then, then during the four-game win streak, like I said, up to that point, best four-game stretch I've ever seen Utah play at that moment. Um, it was incredibly impressive. So now we get to see what it looks like uh, with players who were starting new with a guy like Coach Ludwig, right? Like I don't expect any of the new guys to hit the level of Huntley's senior year with Ludwig or Johnson's senior year of Ludwig, but I do think these players can have a much better start to their careers than Wilson, Williams, and Huntley ever did. I think they have a real chance to do that. And, and I know the saying that, that's out there. A lot of people say this. Uh, coaches get too much credit and also get too much blame. But coaching really does matter. Like in all my years of being around it, okay, coaching isn't everything, but it absolutely matters. Uh, I know that people remember, you know, Alex Smith, Jim Harbaugh, and they remember that relationship negatively um, because of Smith being benched for Kaepernick. But before Harbaugh arrived there, Smith really didn't have much going for him. Uh, the final year of Mike Singletary being there, I thought they had the talent to be great, uh, and they underachieved at 5-11. and 11. <laughs> I remember I got killed uh, before that year because I said uh, I thought they had the roster to potentially have a bye week when the postseason started. <laughs> Whoa. And instead, they weren't all that good. Uh, then a good coaching staff stepped in uh, with Harbaugh and all of that, and then you saw Smith certainly had a few more levels than mo- what most people realized. And they were on the doorstep of, of going to the Super Bowl. So, you know, it was a great situation for Alex. Nick Foles looked like one quarterback with one coach and then a world champion uh, when being an underdog three straight times and going on and winning the Super Bowl for Philly, and he'll be forever loved in Philadelphia. Uh, Tanner Mangum was a dang good quarterback under Robert and I. Uh, coach and I did some great work with backup QBs uh, a number of times. Christian Stewart, he did a good job with him too. Uh, and when Taysom Hill was hurt a few times during his BYU career, Robert and I who I know a number of people may or may not like the guy, but he was exceptional at working in that situation. Um, and his work with Mangum was some of the best we've seen. We probably didn't realize it until we watched what happened with Tanner Mangum with a much different coaching staff two and three years later. I mean, Mangum had times where he barely looked like he belonged on uh, an FBS football field. You know, So it was, it was a scary situation there. So for the record, I like Tanner, but it was, it was obvious. Um, it was a crazy situation, to say the least. Um, it, was, it was night and day. 
Uh, Ty Detmer was in over his head. Robert and I was absolutely fabulous. Um, so coaching matters, and the Utes happen to have a program that can't reach something great without having great coaches, and they've got them. Thankfully for them, they've been in the spot for that. And now I believe they have a chance to excel more often to higher levels with a great and experienced coach at OC. So it's one thing to have a productive decade, but I think it's another thing to have a productive decade and have as many things in place to continue great residuals of that success going forward. Very few programs are really able to have that, and I think that youth fans should feel very fortunate. Um, Kyle Winningham is a guy that, that's probably not going to get some of the credit that he really deserves for constantly evolving and constantly learning more about what it takes to manage his program to get the horses that he needs, whether it's on the staff or on the field, to achieve greatness. He's always about trying to achieve greatness. Uh, he's not a perfect coach, but, man, I can't think of a more perfect coach for that program. Uh, that's because he's, he's always very aware. He's aware about, you know, knowing what's missing and finding ways to address it. Uh, he's able to do that while constantly keeping everything else intact uh, from my dy dynamic defense, great special teams, you know, rugged running game, physical team overall. And, and if you're not one of the premier brand names in college football, it takes a special coach to maintain this level of play. It just does. And he's had that with this program in the last six years. I mean, the first three years, it's a challenge, you know, clearly. And I thought they were a fortunate seven and five in their first year. And then they were a more understandable five and seven and five and seven and 12 and, and then 13, right? So the first three years, you're trying to figure out how to get a full Pac-12 roster. Well, they've been eight and four or better in five of the last six years. And I would consider one of those eight and four years an underachievement. So that's actually pretty good. And it's not easy with the way the college football is set up. I mean, those are the years where you can... Uh, fairly examine the program in the Pac-12 because they had a full roster, like I said. Um, I don't think it was fair to fully examine those first three years. And even then, they, they still did their best to find out how to get the very most out of what they were working with. Um, also makes me think about the current climate of college football uh, in a year that's, that's going to be impacted by COVID-19, right? Uh, even if all of the games were played on time, and if we got back to having fans, let's say we just got back to the way we're used to it being, the uncertainty and the uniqueness of this offseason is going to impact everyone at some level. I mean, no one is going to be able to handle it perfectly, but I'm curious to see which programs can handle it best. Like, if you're one of these Pac-12 teams, I'm putting my money on a program uh, that has a coach that has known how to handle unique situations before. I'm going to put it on a staff uh, that is on the same page and has been for a long time, you know, verbally, culturally, all of it, and a program that knows what they're doing when having a culture of accountability and communicating clear messages to their players. So many of these other programs, uh, they're in the mix of coaching change. They're in the beginning stages of trying to break through into winning at a high level, establishing cultures, things like that. Uh, so this can be more disruptive to their programs compared to a program like Utah's. I mean, they're all going to be affected, but they're affected differently. And somebody like Utah, I think they're more capable, uh, at least structurally, to be able to handle it. So I could see Oregon being just fine. I could see Stanford uh, having fewer problems than most. Uh, even Cal has some good structure in place. I like their staff. But USC has been all over the map with Helton. I don't think UCLA's there with Kelly. And maybe Herm and his crew are about to take that step. I don't know. 
Maybe they're ready for it in Tempe. But I think there's more sustainability with Utah than most of the other programs out there. You know, Oregon State, Washington State. Uh, we could go through them all. Arizona. Like, I think Utah is one of those that, that I'd put my money on to be best to handle this. So to wrap things up, you know, 10 years ago, they are officially announced as a member of the Pac-12. And those 10 years have gone by, and I think Ute fans in those nine seasons have been very, should be very, very pleased uh, with what they've watched. It's not perfect. And, of course, no one is ever completely satisfied. Uh, that's why it's competitive sports. And that's what makes competitive sports uh, great. It's always about the next thing. And so these seasons have included a perfect record against your biggest in-state rival. Uh, you broke even against USC in the six years that I would establish you as having a full roster, right? You're 3-3 three and three with a full Pac-12 roster against USC. Uh, you broke three to, uh, through to win the division uh, in the final two years. Five of the final six seasons, uh, you're eight and four or better. The upgrade to quarterback and offensive coordinator came through. Player development at a really high level. Recruiting has been very good when looking at the final product. Uh, you seem to have what you need with quarterback development. Stud running backs keep coming through that door. Defensive talent never seems to stop. And finally, this past NFL draft should be everything you want to see with the cherry on the top. Great indicator about how all of that work has come together the adaptability, the unquenchable work ethic. It's all paid off for this program to keep doing what it takes to take bigger steps towards greatness individually and collectively. So the Pac-12 era started with 0-4, a missed opportunity and a shocker against Colorado, a couple of 5-7s, and sevens, heartaches in November, poor performances in conference title games, and ended with a pair of division titles and a chance at the playoff. Most people are going to look back at the missed opportunities in this decade and while that's absolutely a part of the truth, overall, if you grade it like an SAT and understand everything in this transition and what it comes with, it's been a damn good decade. Thanks so much for listening to the Tony Parks Podcast. If you like this podcast, uh, please feel free to give it five stars. Uh, all of us will take any of the help that we can get for sure. Uh, love all of your feedback. Uh, so email me, TonyParks801 at gmail.com. Uh, Ute fans would love to hear what your thoughts are on this assessment and how it's come together. Uh, the expectations for the future, where this program is right now. Um, you know, you're passionate about your team. You care about your team. You watch every down. You, you know, you go to the games. Uh, you, you know, you live and die with the results on a Saturday. You know what it's like to be attached to your team. So we'd love your feedback. Email me, TonyParks801 at gmail.com. Follow and message me on any social media channels at TonyParks801. And as always, you can hear us right here on the Utah Podcast Network.